Hi everybody, just a quick plug to let you know that today's episode is a teaser for another upcoming mini-series from the Neurosurgery Podcast, The Hobbies of Neurosurgeons. Just like previous episodes on sports and physical fitness, this mini-series will cover the things that neurosurgeons do, love, and enjoy in their free time, from music to art to, as you'll hear today, wine. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the party. Rolando is really an expert in the wine area, and we will get to that later, but we wanted to get the drinking right away. So cheers, by the way. Cheers, cheers. guys. Thank you. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a good friend of mine. His name is Rolando Garcia. Rolando is an orthopedic surgeon here in Miami, Florida. Rolando went to school at Tulane. He is actually one of the foremost experts in spine arthroplasty. He's definitely the most experienced person I know of in the southeastern U.S. So, Rolando, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Great. So today's topic is wine and spine, and I'm also delighted to be joined by my wife, Amy. John Paul's on call today, so he couldn't make it here. And Amy is actually the one who came up with this concept, I think, of wine and spine for our national meeting at the spine section last year when I was the chairman. So um, thank you, Amy, for that. So to break things off, we're going to actually uh, actually drink some wine here. And mm -hmm. I uh, have opened a bottle of, uh, how do you pronounce this? Uh, Joseph Druhan, Chateau Druhan Chambault Moussigny. Okay, 1999, and this is the year of our marriage with my wife. We're going to pour a little wine here. And I uh, already opened it about uh, an hour and a half, two hours before today's meeting. So hopefully that will be enough in advance to let it open a bit. So, Rolando, if you could, uh, if you could tell us, because Rolando is really an expert in the wine area, and we will get to that later, but we wanted to get the drinking right away. So um, cheers, by the way. Cheers, cheers. guys. Thank you. So. Rolando, walk us through like when you're drinking this particular wine and, and just tell us about the wine again. So this is a beautiful wine. Um, it comes from uh, the Burgundy region. Um, very nicely aged, 1999. The wine, uh, these are wines of great elegance and delicacy. Uh, they are, they're very perfumed. They have a relatively low tannin because of the Pinot Noir grape that has this very delicate uh, veil like of the the skin so unlike the cabernets which are kind of big tannic sort of strong uh wines these are more feminine delicate wines but they yet they have a beautiful expression of that deep cherries these are red cherries black cherry notes the wine as you can see is not super dark yeah i'm you looking can... at the side of the glass here in the light in the sunlight right yes so not super dark, not super dark. You have sort of that you can actually see through the through the wine. If you put, you know, your hand on the other side. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. OK. And um, then so you look at the wine first, right? You do. You do. Uh, you don't want to have uh, 
cloudiness on the wines. Even even some wines, particularly as they age, they start to get a little cloudy, which can be a sign that the wine maybe is past. This wine is beautifully clear. Um, it holds a, just a nice little color all the way from the center to the rim. And uh, the other thing is that you, 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 you get a sense of some notes of orange in the wine, which comes as the wine ages. When, the wines, when, when these wines, whether it be Bordeaux wines or Burgundy or even California wines, as they age, they start to get this orange hint, uh, this, some people call it rust color, that tells a little bit of the age of the wine, and you can see that beautiful uh, hue on this uh, on this glass. Now, I want to drink it right away, but I'm not going to do that, right? I'm going to first um, tell, us, tell us what you're doing now, because our podcast listeners can't see us, right? Sure. So you're swirling the wine because you want to open it up, uh, and you want to hold the wine, the glass, by the stem, not by the uh, actual bowl portion of it, because it tends to warm the wine. So that's particularly true when you're drinking white wines and champagne that you don't want to warm the wine. But even here, you, it's, it's a little bit easier. Probably the easiest way to, to swirl a wine is to put it on a table. And then you can either place it between your long and ring fingers and then swirl gently around. Then you can sense the, the nose or the, the bouquet of the wine by how far you have to be from the wine to start to sense the, the nose. So if you hold the wine and you're maybe three inches and you can start feeling some of the aromas of the wine, then that's a, what we call a, a nice open wine. If you have to basically put your nose inside of the glass, then that means that it's a little bit close. Okay. And, uh, and certainly this wine is very expressive and you can feel a lot of fruit. Uh, again, I, I feel a little combination of red fruit, black fruit in this wine. Okay, and then and then drinking it. Tell us about because I only know about the drinking part. So tell tell me about the drinking. Location. Sure. So you you want to um, you uh, about 80 percent of your appreciation of wine comes from your from your olfactory sense. So when you uh, when you try the wine, you want to get a good good not a huge amount, but you have, want to get a good amount of uh, of wine, and then swirl it in your mouth. So that you can have a sense, a, a sense of the wine touching the front of your teeth, the back of your teeth, and all over your tongue, and then preferably to leave a little bit of wine and then get some air over the wine, so that you can have a, a sense going into the back of your palate. So let me. I'm now, not, as I'm you do this, just... what I love about how you do this is you're really a master. You and Sergio Gonzalez Arias. Are, are masters of this, but you don't make it officious. Like you sometimes see people doing this very exaggerated sniffing and swirling and <laughs> sucking and all this. And I never see you do that, right? Some people, they, it's almost a display. Yeah. I mean, you want to be, you, you want to obviously learn about the wine, but not like, you know, overdo it. Um, these wines are, you know, uh, we, we have such a great wine here that it's, you know, it's a, uh, it, you don't have to really search for it. I think in a, in a if you have a, a situation where you open the wine, particularly after you decanted it, and you have to be swirling and swirling and putting your nose in the in the glass, then that that wine is really probably not at its best. Uh, great, great. Yeah. So I apologize. Most of our listeners are probably not drinking wine right, <laughs> wine right now. And uh, just as a side note, for those of you who are used to our podcast being about twenty minutes. I think this is going to be a little bit longer because, I mean, we could go on for days. And, of course, there are podcasts devoted to wine, right, uh, out there. So, do you, by the way, do you listen to any podcasts about wine? 
Uh, I do to some extent, but I I, I do more of um, online, um, like the uh, websites. There's a website that is for really sort of people that are crazy about wine called Wine Berserkers. And uh, they have little like sections where you can really talk about everything. And, and uh, I've been part of it for a while. And we talked to about this, the most unbelievably esoteric minutia about wine that you can imagine. But, <laughs> now let's, let's go back in time though, because we have listeners that are young uh, adults. We have listeners that are very old and consider themselves experts in wine. So let's go back and let's go back to how your interest began. How did you get started in the whole concept of, of I mean, was it before you were 21 <laughs> or was it something that happened later in life? It definitely happened later in life. I, as I grew up, uh, growing up in, in, uh, you know, Cuba, Spain, and Puerto Rico. I never had wine. We never drank wine, and and it was. Uh, I have a funny story about my father, who's a, who's a mechanic, and as I was growing up, he always said he never drank wine, but he always said the best wine is the cheapest wine. <laughs> and uh, a few years ago, like wine in a box. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And a few years ago, uh, it was at the house, and I brought two bottles of wine, and one was not super expensive and the other one was a really really magnificent very expensive wine i said well that which one do you want and he certainly didn't go for the cheap one so, <laughs> so i think that that sort of went out the window um my my interest in wine was really interesting it, it, it started specifically when um anna my wife and i um were just married we decided to take a wine course which i strongly suggest uh for people to do. We did it at a wine store called Martin's Wine Cellar in New Orleans. And it was one day a week. It was on Thursday nights. Started around six from six to like nine. And uh, I was a first year resident at the time. And just like John Paul, um, I basically would come in late because I was working. So the class was for six to nine. I would show up pretty much every day, every week at eight thirty. There were twelve wines to be tasted, and in thir- in about fifteen minutes, I was done with all the wines. <laughs> so you were a plus. <laughs> so, uh, really, probably should have spent more time uh, trying the wines, but it really sort of opened my, I guess, my eyes, ears, and nose uh, to this to this really wonderful world, and then. Every time my Anna and I and my wife and I went uh, out to dinner, we would really sort of look at the wine list and we would take the labels home and then we would write in a book, you know, everything we liked or didn't like about the wine. Now, back then, really, I mean, our budget for wine was maybe $20, $30 at a restaurant. So, you know, we see we really sort of stayed uh, in love with wine. And then when I started practice and the economics changed and we were really able to start, you know, trying and t- testing uh, better wines. It, it really grew, sort of grew, but it was really that, that course that really sort of, um, sort of really started uh, sort of that passion, you know, that love and passion to the, to the wines. Now, wines have been around for thousands of years and almost every major civilization has some. Of course, we think about wine here in the current era is primarily um, due to sort of the Western or Mediterranean form of wine, which is mostly grapes, but we know there are many other kinds of wines. And we might have to have you back to talk about the multitude of the types of wines there are, even even just sort of the more common varieties that we see at the store and whatnot. 
but you you actually have two wineries, right? So you've gotten very, very deep into this. I know a lot of people, I have a lot of friends who consider themselves experts in wine, but actually they're just, they're sort of uh, dilettantes, if you will, in the <laughs> arena, right? You have really gone very deep into this arena. You have your own winery. Uh, you, I'm sorry, you have two wineries. And, uh, and we had the, the great honor of, uh, of, of sharing some of your first, uh, your first, bottles. first bottles, right? Your yep. first harvest yes. and your first uh, bottles, um, remedi- Remedium, right? Remedium, Remedium yes. yes. It was delicious yes, and it was you. amazing. So, you know, you actually went from soup to nuts. You had bare acreage in, in Napa Valley, correct? Yes. You took bare acreage, five acres, and you converted it into a winery. Within a matter of years, you had grapes planted, harvested, and uh, fermented and produced into a very, very eminently drinkable, and I have to say an excellent wine. I mean, I pictured it being like 10 years of experimentation, right? But it's not like that for you. You've really become good. Tell us about that journey and why why it was so, I wouldn't say easy, why you made it look so easy. Well, uh, I I definitely will tell you that I I don't consider it easy, but um, we bought the land about, I mean, my sort of journey with wine has really been probably one of the most uh, after family one of the most enjoyable things i have done um i think just like uh, just about every passion including uh spine surgery uh is one of those things that you can never learn enough and as a matter of fact the more you learn about it the more you realize that you don't really know um i had the unbelievably um good fortune of becoming friends with uh the person whom I sincerely think is probably the greatest winemaker in the in the world by now. His name is Aaron Pott. And for those that so are really P O T T P O T T, and uh, for those that are really into wine, I think that they would have to agree with me that he's either one of the best, in my opinion, the be- the best one. So when we bought land to develop in originally it was in Brazil about 20, 17 years ago. And uh, we recognized that in order to make great wine, the number one, um, the number one decision, the number one element is the, the soil, the earth, the terroir. Um, so when we were thinking about buying land in Napa, we actually had Aaron Pot pick the, the land and that he thought would be the best one. And it was really thanks to him that we were lucky enough to find this, this, this just magical piece of land but there's no land available, right? I mean, it's all been bought up by the big wineries and the houses, right? Unfortunately, that's happened a lot. And unfortunately, it keeps happening where there's more consolidation because obviously, you know, as you know, selling wine is not easy. And particularly, you know, if you're a small producer, it's very, it can be very challenging. And just like with spine manufacturers, you know, if, if, if a big company has a great pipeline of distribution and sales, then it's very hard for them to compete with a smaller company that doesn't have that that large distribution and sales pipeline. Um, but there's still, I think, I, I think one of the nice things is there's still people that still have the passion. I can tell you that you do not uh, you do not develop a small vineyard in Napa with the idea of making money. <laughs> um, and that certainly has been the case for us. I don't think we will see any kind of returns for it, but that's not really the, the goal mm-hmm. here. Just like 
just like when you buy art or when you do anything, you only make money if I guess if you sell it. Otherwise, you enjoy it. You know, if you if you're fortunate enough that you can, you like a great piece of art and you're able to have it at your home and you really love it. I think that the reward is that you get to enjoy it and on a daily basis. And that's sort of the same thing here is uh, you get to enjoy it. And I, I to me, I, I've been waiting many years and the greatest pleasure is sharing the wine with good friends like you. Uh, oh, Amy. it's and amazing it's, uh, what you, I mean, it really, I, you know, I've known so many surgeons over the years and so many people who know a little bit about wine, but truly I cannot emphasize it enough. You did that spine and wine that, that Amy recommended spine section at the fountain blue last year. So many young surgeons came up and said, Oh my God, you know, this is, this was the most amazing night of instruction and learning I've ever had. And these are neurosurgeons. Um, so let's go back to that because our listeners are interested or in the medical field. What is it about a passion for wine that so, so much occupies such a large piece of, let's say, doctors in general or surgeons in particular, and especially orthopedic and neurosurgeons? Like it is, it is commonplace. I would say, I almost say I don't trust neurosurgeons who don't drink unless they're Muslim or Mormon or they have a religious background that prevents them from doing it. It, it seems like almost everybody I respect in neurosurgery understands a little bit about appreciates and enjoys wine. I mean, tell me why that is, because if you go in a general populace, it is not like that. Yes. I, I think there are many factors, but I think perhaps it's a great question. I think perhaps it's because of, uh, and particularly with neurosurgeons and, and, and spine surgeon is sort of the, the cerebral aspect of it. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a passion that it can really sort of, um, get you involved with with just about every sense so it's just like we were talking about it's one of those areas just like spine just like science where it's all it's almost like a mental challenge uh you know i i as as i i have tried to learn about wine you know i i have really tried to train myself to learn i have i probably read more about i mean i'm afraid to say that i probably read a lot more about wine than I do about spine. Well, you've already learned most of the spine, right? I mean, you pretty much are, you're up to date on everything. So. I, I, I don't know about that, but I, I, it's, it's really fascinating how, you know, uh, uh, I think particularly uh, um, with people that read and people that, that, that want to challenge themselves, I think spine can be a great outlet because it really offers sort of this, this never ending journey. And that if you're lucky enough, like I am to have a life partner that enjoys this, that uh, enjoys wife, Anna, Anna yeah. uh, who enjoys uh, that journey as much, uh, then, then, then it's great. I think that, um, I, for example, if I, if I ask, uh, Anna, my wife, uh, I mean, we'll start thinking about what we're going to drink on Friday on Wednesday. So on Wednesday, I'll say, you know, well, what bottle of wine would you like to open? She will, she will tell me, you know, well, I think that I would like to start with, you know, a white Bordeaux, maybe like 10 years old, uh, maybe something from the, you know, the left bank. And then I would like to then go for the left bank of, of Bordeaux. Bordeaux okay. And then she will, <laughs> then she will tell me, you know, and then after that, then maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, a little bit older burgundy, just like what we're having here today. And she will, you know, she will say, you know, like Chambon, Moussigny, what we're drinking is known um, as the more feminine side of even within the Burgundy region compared to something called Chambertin, which is a, 
a uh, great vineyard that, but that has a little bit, puts a little bit of more um, firmness and, and, and I think backbone on the wine. So I'm very lucky that she, she really has jumped in this uh, bandwagon and, and, and she's and, a dietitian. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's right up her alley, right? Yeah. And, and she, I admittedly, she's much more talented than I am in terms of her sense of smell and taste, because yes. I think it has to do a lot with the fact that as you guys know, that she's, she's a great cook and she really enjoys sort of that area. Me, on the other hand, I, I practice a lot more <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I'm a lot more academic about it. Now, let me just interject here about halfway through a podcast that what we're not talking about here is alcoholism. I've known Rolando for 25 years and, you know, he and I easily could go a month without drinking and not miss it a bit. And it's not like you're drinking other alcohols as a substitute. Your passion is wine. You don't drink yeah. beer much. You don't drink hard alcohol much. You love wine and good right. wine, right? Right. So just for the younger folks and the people out there, we've already had podcasts talking about, let's say Mike Lawton feels the way I do, that you shouldn't drink coffee because it makes your hand shake. I don't believe in drug use. I don't believe in marijuana use. It's controversial, but we've discussed that with Chris Winfrey in previous podcasts. And the bottom line is this is not about alcohol consumption per se. It's about a passion for uh, a particular refinement of civilization, if you will. So let me let me go a little bit further with you, Rolanda, because we've we've spent so much time together. And I want to tell three very quick stories about how I was so I, I knew immediately that you were different. The first story was uh, was the most recent when you and Sergio Gonzalez Arias got together. Uh, we were all together and you were doing blind tastings. And I didn't know what a blind tasting was. And people would bring a uh, you guys had just met. You would bring a, a bottle of wine uncorked, but masked, covered, no label. And you guys could pick out not only it would be the grape, then the region, then the year and then possibly often the winery. And, and Amy, right, we were shocked. We were like, who, wh what? Like, it's red wine. I got it. <laughs> it's a red it was amazing. We're like, what is the level of refinement? And along those lines, the first time Amy and I were at your house, you had that game. What is it called? Uh, Le Nez du Vin. How do you say that? Le, Le Nez du Vin, the nose of wine. Yeah. It's a, so for if you guys really are podcast listeners, go out there and look at what this is. This is a fascinating game that has to do with uh, cranial nerve number one primarily uh, the factory nerve. And then the third was, was when we, when we first got to know you, I want to say it was 2000 and uh, was it 10 that you did that dinner where you had wine pairings, all hundred point wines plus water pairing. And I never even, and Amy and I still have the menu that you had and you had a patient of yours as chef yes. as, at your house, at your home and many famous orthopedic spine surgeons there and, and to pair a water to a wine. I mean, this is really, sort of the height of refinement, because I just thought water's water, but it really did taste different. I don't think it was a mental thing because I'm not susceptible to that stuff. Like every water tastes totally different. Yeah. It was shocking to me. It, it like blew my mind. I was completely awoken. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm dead to my senses on the world. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's interesting that we, um, I mean, you can tell me better, but they said that we utilized only a small small percentage of our brain. And I think that probably a significant percentage of our brain is our sense of, of smell and taste that we don't really, really allow, you know, really get uh, to develop as much as, you know, for example, uh, other animals that obviously have just a, a an unbelievable sense of, you know, of smell. 
Um, but I think uh, if I had to give a recommendation as, uh, as to so if someone wants to start learning about wine, I think that they have to do it by tasting different wines, um, obviously. With At your house, of course. Right? <laughs> of course. But at the same time, it's very difficult to learn about wine when you drink them sequentially. So if you, you're going to have, say, three glasses of wine or two glasses of wine, it's very difficult to learn wine if you drink one wine and then you finish and then you start tasting the next one. It's much, from a from an learning exercise, it's much better to have them all at the same time and then to go back and forth and before you try them to do really sort of sort of try to, to smell and get the scent of each wine and then to try them and going back and forth and back and forth because that's really sort of and that's how these wine seminars are really can be really helpful when you have multiple wines that you can that you can try at the same time uh, so I, I think that that's a key component of, of learning about wine okay so Rolando can I interject then yes. with a very elementary question and I'm going to pretend I'm John Paul in the hot seat right with and I've seen this happen quite frequently you go out to a dinner right you're um you're the young guy of the group and they hand you the menu and they say okay John Paul you you go ahead you choose the wine where do you start where do you red, white, price point, vintage, what would uh, you recommend? That's a great question. And I, I think that that really is one of the nice thing about, you know, sort of learning and, and feeling confident. I think that um, uh, the, the, the price of the wine is a somewhat of a reflection. It's very hard to get certain wines to be good if they are cheap. Like, for example, if you're going to have a bottle of Napa Valley Cabernet, you know that you can achieve a basic level of goodness with a very inexpensive wine. The flip side is if you, are, if, if you feel like drinking a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, uh, you can get a very, very reasonably priced wine that tastes very good. Okay, so let's so back you up. So Napa Cab, Napa Cabernet Sauvignon grape. Yes. What's the base? What's the bargain basement on retail? It's difficult, but I would say that if it's if it's really a, a Cabernet, which means that it should be seventy or eighty percent Cabernet Sauvignon. Sometimes there's a blend, but I, I think it's very difficult to get to a good level below forty dollars okay. or so, fifty dollars. Yes. So that retail. means in a restaurant that's going to be eighty to a hundred to a hundred dollars, yes. right? So you, you would do much better in terms of in, if you want to show that you know, then you're, you, you can do much better by going to a different grape on a different continent. So, for example, you can get a much better Rioja from Spain or you can get uh, uh, Shiraz from Australia that drinks very well for about half the price. But, uh, you know, people sometimes, and, and it's such a great question, they sort of get... Uh, you know, they get boxed into just thinking that they have to, they have to get a California cab. If, if um, I, I, I think that I would start by looking at what everybody's ordering. So if you're going to have appetizers and you're going to have seafood and you're going to have salads, then you should start with a white because it has that br bright acidity and it just, 
very refreshing. And then if then everyone's having, for example, fish, you're theoretically okay with either a pinot or a white. But if if most of the the, the main entrees are gonna be, uh, you know, meat, uh, then I think that that's where you get into that bigger but wine. Just before people go crazy on this, just last week, Amy and I were out at a restaurant because we we're trying to support the local restaurants. It was a very nice Italian place we love. And I was ordering wine and, and I saw, oh, there's this wine from, I think it was Slovenia. Slovenia. I'm like, oh, Slovenian wine. I'm like, oh my goodness. And it was not cheap. Yeah. It was quite expensive. And I'm like, oh, Slovenian wine. I, I must have the Slovenian wine. And the waiter as well goes, oh, yeah. Mm. I think I've, yes, I've had that wine. I would, let me steer you a little bit more towards Italy. And, and, um, and then the, the, the chef, the owner came out later and said, oh, he loves that Slovenian wine. And so there is a danger zone where you're yes. ordering from areas that you don't even comprehend, right? Like yes. there is that danger zone too. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I get to the, I, I would say that I, just like with, just like with spine, just like with surgery, um, if you think you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be picking the one you have to prepare, like I always mm. look at the yeah. wine list online before I go. Oh, to that's such good advice. Nobody that's does that. Oh, I, I, Nobody I, does I that. I always look at the menu before I go to a restaurant. Oh, no. absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I know who I'm going with. I, I learn about it. You know, I, so, so, you know, you wouldn't do a case without preparing for it, without exactly. looking at the MRIs and the x-rays. If you're going to be in a situation where you're going out with anybody, and you're going to be, or there's a chance that you're going to be picking that wine. Look at that wine list. Call the call the restaurant. You know, if they don't have it online, most people have it online. But even the ones that don't have it online, they will email it to you ahead of time. And then you can just do a little bit of research and look at it. I, I certainly do that. And the interesting thing is the better the restaurant, the more I do that. So, I mean, if I'm going to have a, just like you looking at them, if you're going to have a really special meal, the last thing you want to do is, you know, is, is to is to not have a clue about the wine. And unfortunately, depending on the restaurant and depending on the relationship with the restaurants, sommeliers are wonderful people, but they they work in this. It's a business. So there are wines that they have to sell. There are wines that, that they may have a particular significant amount of um either large stock or they got a great deal on the wine. So they, they got it a very they have reasonable an incentive price. Too. Absolutely. And, and there's, they, some, they may have a relationship with a distributor or even with a, with a wine, uh, a wine label. So they can be a great source of information. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, for example, that, as you know, I like, I like going to bourbon steak, the, there's so many other Craig is fantastic. So it's the, I would say the only restaurant that I, that I ever go to where I don't look at, look at the wine list. And I simply say, you pick, for you me. pick it. Right. But you know, it's such an important thing because I know we're in the coronavirus pandemic and there's a lot less contact, but it's very common for resident applicants, fellow applicants, and people on a job interview to be taken out to a nice restaurant. And there is an etiquette, right? There is an etiquette. The senior partner of an ortho or neuro spine group says, hey, you know, we, we're bringing this young guy on. Maybe let's bring him and his wife out to dinner. And they will, I don't want to say test. They will sort of offer the honor of picking the wine, as Amy's saying. Yes. So what do you do? Like, how, like you go with Parker points. Like, I mean, the research is 100% right. That If I had known that advice 
20 years ago, I'd be so much further ahead in life right now. <laughs> but I, I don't. So let's help the younger people now. What do you sure. do? You're, so, you're in the spot now. Sure. So the 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 ratings are definitely helpful to know if a, if a wine is good or bad. You're talking about Parker points now. Parker, yes, but there's there's one spectator. There's the Cantor magazine. There's uh, you know Parker has other tastes like uh, the wine advocate Luis Gutierrez and others. Um, what you have to do is you have to find out which one is the you know the the expert that you mostly identify with. So uh, historically, um, the best critics of wine came from uh, from England mostly, um, and uh, they kind of wrote most of the the encyclopedias and the books about wine, and they had a very different palette to Robert Parker. Robert Parker was probably really rose to great um, you know reputation because he had a very distinct. He wanted that big, bold you know, steroid, jammy, jammy American style. And people started saying, you know what? I actually like that. I I like that. And then, so if you, if you look at the decanter magazine, which comes from, from, from England, and you looked at Parker's scores, they were quite different. And it's because it was a matter of taste. Um, And, uh, and so they, so, so you have to identify a little bit with with it, but I would say it's important. But don't get fixed. Like I, I, I find it really, really funny when someone says this is a ninety-one point one and this is a ninety-two point one. I do that because I'm I'm like a quant. I'm, I'm an okay. idiot. No, 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 no you're no, not. You're all straight A people. You're one. you're not. But the night anything in the nineties is going to be excellent. So. If 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 I were, was to pick a wine and one was ninety four and it was a hundred dollars and one was ninety two and it was fifty dollars, I certainly would go with the ninety two because it's it, that price uh, point ratio is is is, is more is more, more useful there. Okay, can I ask a silly scientific question, sure. which is, what about the physiological effects of wine? I find sometimes when I drink a less expensive wine, I can have one glass and it feels like I had forty. And whenever we go to your house, we can have 40 glasses and it feels like one. Can you explain a little bit about the science of that? That's a great question. So, so winemaking is, it's, uh, th- there's a lot of factors. The first one being uh, the purity of the one, the cleanliness of the, uh, uh, of the winery. And uh, wines that are made at very large scales in, in certain wineries um, are not, under the same um, care that higher end wines. And therefore the impurities on the wine are the ones that unfortunately give people headaches and then they they don't feel particularly well. Um, it also has to do with the preservative, this, particularly the sulfite content on the wine. But I think that probably just as much, if not more, is, is the, the, the purity of the wine, how cleanly. So, n- n- you're not necessarily going to get uh, sick with or have a headache the next day if you drink cheap wine, but it's much less likely to happen if you if you are dealing with a, a, a good producer. But tell Rolando about the last time we were in Napa Valley, about you were at the bar and you ended up talking to a very interesting chemist, right? 
Yeah, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> true or not, but there was somebody from a big chemical company that was there that talked about the additives that they put in yes. the wine. Yeah, they, they, there are some different processes in which they can do additives, uh, even to the point that some wineries will even put chips of oak in the into the wine to increase the, the flavors. Uh, they will add different uh, chemicals to, to preserve the wine and Again, that tends to be more often true with those very, very large producers. I mean, um, when you're there, there's there are wine labels that literally make tens of millions of or tens of millions of cases of wine of a wine, and it's very difficult to keep a very strict um, standard when you when you're doing that that sort of volume. Okay, so cult of wine uh, in popular cinema, uh, bottle shock versus sideways, which is your favorite? So, um, or is there another one that's even better? Well, first of all, I would say that um, my favorite films about wine is if you if you if you're with your wife, it would have to be a good year with Russell Crowe. I, I would say that that's a good year. A good year yeah. with Russell Crowe. I would say that's one of the uh, most really sort of meaningful in terms of if, if you want to understand wine it's really to be it's really better if you look at it with your with your with your significant other but it's really that's a great movie about the spirit of wine what mean wines sort of should mean to someone um in terms of interesting i would say that the documentary some the original one some that was fantastic mm -hmm. bottle shrug is interesting because i had last year the opportunity to meet the, the the actual winemaker of the 1974 Chateau Montelena Chardonnay which is featured as the wine that that uh, Barrett, he actually didn't make that wine oh really it was actually made uh, by uh, Mike Gergich he's 94 when I met him last year <laughs> And he actually declined to be in the movie, and that's why his name is not part of the movie, and he was the actual winemaker. Wow. So Bottle Shark was very entertaining. I, I thought Sideways was brilliant, but the funny thing is that I would say that the most coveted wines in the world are, are, um, are Pinots. I would agree with that sort of in the movie. But the interesting thing is that perhaps... One of the the other most coveted wines in the world are a hundred percent Merlot. So there's uh, Chateau Petrus, which is a uh, very famous wine. I would say we had the pleasure of drinking it with you. And I mean, th those are you know those great years can go up to ten, fifteen thousand dollars a bottle. Um, Le Pan. Um, so it's it's very interesting. So it's not the grape that makes the wine good or bad. It's it's the artist, the soil. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's just like a work of art. You can't say that you can't paint a beautiful painting with green. Right. You can probably do it with green. You can do it with red, but you just have to have the right artist. Wow. That's amazing, Rolando. I think uh, anybody who's had the chance to drink uh, and share in, uh, in, in a glass of wine with you comes away with a true uh, sense of the artistry involved, the passion you bring to it. Uh, the, the passion you bring to wine, I, I try to bring to surgery every day, and I would try to inspire the young people listening to 
to do that and the preparation, the science, the, um, the dedication and commitment to, to, to bettering yourself in this arena. I think it really, you speak volumes about it. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, if you have questions for Dr. Garcia or any of us, please do not hesitate to contact us at uh, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. And my wife, Amy, will be on in a soon-to-be future episode uh, about housewives, if you Stay will. Stay tuned. Yes, of neurosurgery, wow. yes. I'm definitely be listening to that one. Yeah, thank you again, Rolando. Thank you. It's been Cheers. an honor. Thank you. Cheers. 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 The large annual meetings obviously have great value um, and are outstanding meetings, but I think surgeons can sometimes also benefit from the smaller, perhaps independent, mid-size meetings of maybe 100 surgeons. I think it gives you a much greater chance uh, to network, a much greater chance for interaction uh, during the program. One of those programs, which I think is outstanding, happens in January over the Martin Luther King weekend, and it's called Spine Face to Summit. It's been going for 30 years. Uh, the reviews of it are exceptional. It's just an outstanding meeting. Uh, the sessions are in the morning. By 10 o'clock in the morning, you can get out on the slopes, and then the sessions start again from 5 till 7 in the evening. It's a, it's a superb program. To learn more, you go to www.broad-water.com, broad-water.com.